The antithesis of Babylon is not us building up towards God, it's God descending, it bringing heaven down to us. Welcome back to Chapter, Verse, and Season, a lectionary podcast from Yale Bible Study. I'm your host, Elena Martin. Join us every Monday as two Yale Divinity School professors look at an upcoming text from the Revised Common Lectionary. This episode, we have Erica Helgen, Associate Professor of Latin American and Latinx Christianity, and Chloe Starr, Professor of Asian Christianity and Theology. They're discussing Revelation, chapter 21, verse 10, and chapter 21, verse 22, through chapter 22, verse 5. This is kind of a confusing selection of verses, so check out the show notes for the details. The text is appointed for the sixth Sunday of Easter, and it's read for you by student Misty Kiwak Jacobs. Revelation chapter 21, verse 10, and Revelation chapter 21, verse 22, through chapter 22, verse 5. In the Spirit, the angel carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. People will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing accursed will be found there any more. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads and there will be no more night. They need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So the finale, Erica. Yep. We have the holy city coming down out of heaven from God. It's funny, I'm reminded of the hymn Jerusalem the Golden, where it's, it's the 12th century Bernard of Cluny. Starts off with, I know not, oh, I know not what joys await us there, what radiancy of glory, what bliss beyond compare. And I've been reading that recently because it was translated by my favorite Chinese theologian, Zhao Zichun, into Chinese and is in his hymn collection. But to me, endless light seems more like a prison nightmare or a hospital with 24 hours of fluorescent light. And I can't quite get into the imagery of everlasting day. What strikes me when reading this is just the, the specificity of 
the details of the description of both the city and also what life and reality in that city is like. And yeah, I'm not sure, you know, it's it's different from what we have now. But for me, as a historian of Latin America and liberation theology, the physical description, but also the idea that the kingdom of God, this new Jerusalem, is very concerned with meeting people's needs, right? Having the tree of life so that people have food, the river for water, um, healing, medicine. This is the ideal. This is what God wants. And that's something that in Latin America, liberation theologians talked about a lot, that God wants a just world, a just city. The new Jerusalem is a Jerusalem of justice with abundance for everyone. But we can build that here on earth. We can start to build, obviously not finish, but start to build that kingdom of God here on earth. Yes, I love the notion of those leaves, a plant-based healing for the nation. But as you say, you know, there's a real tension here because this is not a human city. It's not a human construct. It's given. It's the heavenly city, meaning heaven on earth, dwelling place of God. So, you know, we're not going up to heaven. We're living in a community with God here and God's dwelling with us. You know, that is heaven. So we're going to be heaven on earth. And it's this renewed earth, uh, sort of renew, reuse, remade version. Well, but that tension is important, right? This tension between, you know, building in the here and now and the fact that this is a new Jerusalem of the afterlife that's given by God and not built by man. But to a certain extent, what also is given is the image of this city, the idea of this city, and that we know that this is the new Jerusalem that God wants, and we can start to build that on earth. Yeah, I mean, there's this strange tension, as you say, between um, it being a God-given, renewed city. It's not a human building that is the antithesis of Babylon. It's not us building up towards God. It's God descending it, bringing heaven down to us. And, you know, we've, we both know of all the examples in the histories of the areas we study of, of these human-built kingdoms. I mean, you know, in the US, you think about the Branch Davidians or others, whereas in China, I think about the Taiping Tianguo, the heavenly, the kingdom of heavenly peace. But, you know, this band of para-pseudo-Christians in the 1850s and 60s, you know, uh, Hong Xiuquan ended up thinking that he was, well, started off thinking he was the, the younger brother of Jesus and, and therefore, you know, a son of God. And he went on to build this huge kingdom. He, you know, took uh, his band of thousands in the end of supporters, sort of military militia and set up kingdom in Nanjing. And, you know, it nearly ruled and reigned the country. But this fantastical sort of heavenly kingdom ultimately went totally rotten. You know, it started out with all these good biblical precepts and order, and yet it, you know, imposed chastity on the masses and strict segregation of the sexes. And yet, you know, the rulers had their own harems and, and lived in the lap of luxury. And it, and it went very rotten, as all human-built cities do in the end, when they try to sort of create a separate kingdom of God on, on earth. Whereas the John version is for everybody. It's open to all, you know, and I love the notion that there are no 
borders, no walls, no no gates. The gates will never be shut. You know, at the moment, we're thinking of all the shut borders around the world, the southern border of the US and the migrant flows from your area of the world. And then, you know, the COVID shut borders that keep changing and keep opening. But this, there's only day there. It's, it's open by day. And since there's only day, it's open 24 hours. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. I think this idea that it's open to everyone, it's not, you know, even though we have a very detailed physical description of uh, the carnelian and the jasper and the onyx. <laughs> exactly. And the size, right? But obviously, this is meant to be much bigger. But it has, you know, this idea of um, building a new Jerusalem, a holy city. We've seen, you know, taken up in Latin America by liberation theology and sort of a much broader social justice platform. But more along the lines of what you were talking about before, also specifically in Brazil, there's a very famous history of a community called Canudos, which in the late 19th century built, you know, in an area basically from the ground up out of nothing, a huge community whose leader, Antonio Conciliero, called it the New Jerusalem. And it was this idea that this community, by living according to this image of God's new Jerusalem, could bring about a period of justice and peace for everyone. Now, the interesting thing about Canudos is that it was brutally uh, suppressed by the Brazilian military, the Brazilian government, and has become an image of, even though obviously this city uh, was not successful in ushering in an age of peace and justice, the legacy of Canudos and the idea of Canudos has oftentimes been taken up by people throughout the 20th and even 21st centuries as a example of a movement that is trying to build a new society here on earth that has a connection to the heavenly society. And so you did see liberation theologians in the 20th century, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, think about how religion in Brazil and Latin America has been an inspiration for a new type of community. But of course, part of the inspiration that comes from Kunudosh comes from the fact that most of the residents of Kunudosh were prepared and did die for the community. And so it was a relatively short-lived New Jerusalem. So yeah, in the 1920s and 30s, the Chinese Christians were very much following the social gospel movement in other parts of the world and trying to envisage the kingdom of heaven on earth. And it was precisely the kingdom of God that they were building by thinking about land reform and education and literacy programs and all this social justice work. And as you say, there's this tension between that being the motivator towards, you know, living into that life of, of bringing justice on earth and yet knowing that our version is on earth and isn't the heavenly Jerusalem. I mean, what I like about this passage in particular is is the verses about people will bring it into it 
the glory and the honor of the nations. And even the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Now, the kings of the earth are those who've been, you know, condemned in previous chapters. But here they are coming into Jerusalem. And there are obviously all these debates about how universalist John is being in his vision. But the people bringing the glory and the honor of the nations. So with all their cultural specificity and with all their difference, you know, everyone is going to be there in New Jerusalem together. We're not going to be bound by our petty nationalities or issues of race or any of the questions that are keeping us so earthbound at the moment. But also, you know, it's going to be contextualized Christianities. I think sometimes in the US and Europe, we have difficulty about seeing, you know, the cultural context of our own Christianity as being that. We think about other peoples as, as being, you know, different or, or local contextualization and not realizing that, you know, this huge joy of all of our distinctivenesses coming together in the kingdom at this point. I remember when I was at school, I was probably about 13, and it was the first time I'd ever heard there was a band came to our Christian Union of South American panpipe players. And I thought this just this music was fantastic. And it just even at 13, I thought, wow, that's a bit like the heaven, you know, heaven. We're going to hear people from all over the world being together in, in their worshipping in their own different ways. Thanks for listening. Help someone else find this podcast by taking a moment to subscribe or favorite it. Different apps call it different things. And thank you, everyone who's subscribed already. You can check out YaleBibleStudy.org for more Bible study resources and follow us on Twitter at BibleYale to stay up to date on all our offerings at the Center for Continuing Education. Chapter, Verse, and Season is produced by Joel Baden, Kelly Morrissey, and me, Helena Martin. Aidan Stoddart is our editorial and production assistant, and our theme music is by Calvin Linderman. Thanks as always to the Center for Continuing Education at Yale Divinity School. And thank you, Professors Helgen and Starr, for joining us again this week. We'll be back with another conversation from chapter, verse, and season.